talking. <laughs> this is regular talking. Uh, so I'm almost done with like going through Tim Burton movies. Okay. And both Edward Scissorhands and Batman Returns, I can't remember if I mentioned this to you before, but they both end with basically like all like the social bonds of like this world collapsing. Okay. Like in Edward Scissorhands, he has to like go back up to that weird castle on the hill right because like the townsfolk has have turned on him they flat out like lied about him too like yeah one of the ladies like claimed that he tried to rape her not only does that disconnect edward scissorhands from the townsfolk mm-hmm. but it also kind of like ruins diane weiss goodwill amongst the other townsfolk because she was the she one brought that brought him down. down yeah but it's also like there's like like this like little tacit understanding that like Nobody really wanted Edward to go, but they had to because of public perception. Uh, and that kind of like ruins just the friendship between people in mm-hmm. town as well. Mm. And then, of course, Winona Ryder like still was like outwardly accepting of Edward. Right. So people don't treat her the same way either. Probably going to shun her. And then with Batman Returns, it's like, you know, even though Batman and Catwoman love each other. You know, in the movie sense, like they kind of hate each other, but they do love each other. Uh, they can't be together. Max Shrek is killed by Catwoman, like, and he was like, you know, captain of industry in the town, and the, uh, you know, the guy running for mayor, the Penguin, is also dead, and you know, Batman like takes off his mask, and like that's of course a big thing, and like all this is just like destroyed at the end of Batman Returns, like all these like. Uh, interpersonal relationships and things like that and I always thought it was interesting like this is someone at like the peak of like their Hollywood prowess Mm -hmm. and they're making movies about like destroying all your social bonds Hmm. but I realized he was making Edward Scissorhands like the year before he got divorced oh and so it was probably like starting to crumble under Edward Scissorhands like he co-wrote that movie and then like his divorce was finalized while making Batman Returns Hmm. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. A lot of people say that Tim Burton's a little bit more style over substance, but I think, like, his personal values and feelings and reflections are in there. It's just he doesn't make it an autobiographical movie, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and then right after that, he did uh, Ed Wood, right? So that's, like, his love letter to, like, cinema in general. And that- like He worked through his demons, <laughs> and then he got to create something really special. Yeah. Uh, like a little personal pet project where he met his next wife, Lisa Marie. Look at that. And she was in all his movies until he dumped her for <laughs> Helena Bottom Carter, whom he met on Planet of the Apes. They were married or the, did they just date? I don't think they got married. They had two kids together. Well, that doesn't <laughs> I mean, mean, that doesn't mean that they got married. I understand <laughs> that. And then he dumped her for Eva Green whom he met on the set of Dark Shadows. Yikes. Which was the last movie Helen Bottom Carter was in of his. <laughs> so my theory is that Tim Burton is just making movies so that he can meet more women. <laughs> huh. It's an odd dating scheme. Uh, it's but one that works, though. Apparently, yeah. It's, it's been very <laughs> successful for him. He's gotten two wives, a girlfriend, and two kids. Yeah. Way to go, Tim. Yeah, you know, live it up. Looks like Amy Adams dodged a bullet there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. Um, Well, can I say it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Welcome to X-Rated Movies. 
This is a movie podcast by two guys who used to date and now they don't. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Whedon. I am the other one of your hosts, Matthew Fisher. And now we're having our second glass of rosé. You just uh, listen to us sort of have a little rap sesh. (laughs) We've got our chairs turned backwards and we're just like, uh, you know, laying it out. I mean, that was like, quite honestly, like we'll talk like that for like 90 minutes Mm -hmm. before hitting the record (laughs) button. We were just talking about how Mark Maron was saying on his thousands episode, he waits for people to kind of get in the zone for it. Mm-hmm. So we thought we'd try it. And he sort of springs it on people. Like he'll hit the record button when they're not paying attention. So a lot of times they don't even realize that they're being recorded. So all that anti-Semitic stuff is like right at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> we did not get any opening banter suggestions this week. Yeah. So, so this we're is just your punishment. We're winging it. <laughs> um, oh, I, I know. I can take a moment and, and do this. I have a friend... Uh, who I used to live with uh, here in Seattle f- 15 years ago or so. Some would call them a roommate. Yeah, he was he was my roommate, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> also a friend, uh, who for years and years and years has been uh, wanting, has always wanted to be a writer. Like when we lived together, we used to go to Elliott Bay Books and like talk about how he was going to have his book there and da 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 da. And uh, he's getting a novel published this May. Oh, wow. His debut novel is coming out on a pretty big publishing house. It's on Simon & Schuster. And That's like, like the biggest publishing house. I know. I went to the uh, Elliott Bay because I wanted to reserve a few copies. And uh, I told them, I went, I went up to the information desk. I was like, my friend has a book coming out. I'd like to reserve a few copies. And they're like, okay, what's his name? And I said, well, I said, the name of the book is called Riots uh, I Have Known. And then as they're looking it up, you can just see them get more and more excited about it. They're like, oh, this is a big book. Oh, we're already getting 20 copies. They're like, is he coming in to do a reading? Blah, blah, blah. I find out he's totally coming in to do a reading. Oh, wow. On June 7th. But the point of my story is that like once they started talking about it and I was chatting with them about it, I don't know if I was just like in the right emotional state or whatever, but I started crying (laughs) because I was just so damn proud. And it was really embarrassing to because you were integral in this. Like, no, I, I mean I'm just so proud of him, and like, because you know he's always wanted to oh, be. You, it. Oh, okay, you were proud of him. Okay. Yeah, 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 I was just proud of him for. I thought you were like, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I got my three copies. But no, I'm I also... thought you were like, I got him published by encouraging him <laughs> for 15 years. Way to go! Just patting yourself on the back. <laughs> You'll show up at the book reading and you're signing yeah. in the books. I just show up and I'm like, okay, where's my thank you? <laughs> but yeah, so free plug there, Ryan. It's um, Riots I Have Known by Ryan Chapman. It comes out in May. Um, it's already getting a lot of good press. So Fiction? Nonfiction? Fiction. Okay. Which is hard to do, I think. As evidence here, we struggle to make stuff up. <laughs> so the idea that someone like wrote a whole book is pretty impressive. Ugh, came out of their brain, their Where words. They just made it up the whole way through. <laughs> Good lord. God. What is this, jazz? <laughs> Writing a book's like a whole several pages of opening banter. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> How did he do it without suggestions on Facebook or Twitter? <laughs> My boyfriend calls this uh, our, our podcast. Uh, he calls it book club. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of like a book club. Yeah, he's, he's like, "You doing book club tonight?" 
So it's sort of fitting that you brought an actual book today. I brought an actual book. I've been uh, longtime listeners may may or eagle eared listeners. Wait, that doesn't work either. Uh, what, what's a good listening animal? Bad eared, bad eared listeners. I don't know. Dogs are good at hearing. Dog eared listeners. Oh, and like books. Do- you dog ear a page? Oh, see. Okay, great. Dog eared <laughs> listeners will know that uh, I read a Jim Henson biography last year. I pepper that in here once in a while, but I brought it with me today. It's Jim Henson the biography by Brian J. Jones. And I brought it because I might need to reference it because we're talking about a Jim Henson movie today. And which Jim Henson movie is that? Why, it's 1982's The Dark Crystal. So, you finally saw it. You were a virgin, a Dark Crystal virgin until, Mm -hmm. I don't know, a couple days ago, I'm assuming. Uh, Last night. Last night. Took my virginity last night, he did. Poof. Just popped that cherry. So, I mean, you and I are both fans of things like... uh, set dressing props that sort of level of production values we like puppetry over cgi doing it for real if you value that sort of thing over say avatar it's hard not to like this movie a little bit yeah because it's just the most sumptuous of set dressing and props and puppeteering like while watching it like even just near the beginning when the uh what are they called? The Sextons? The, ske- <laughs> the Skeksis. The Skeksis? Yeah, Skeksis. Skeksis? I'm, and I'm not sure if Skeksis is plural or singular. So when the Skeksis were getting uh, LASIK from the Dark Crystal, <laughs> and I'm looking around, I, like, I honestly thought, where was the Academy Award nomination for Best Costumes? Uh, yeah. Like, I, unironically, because they're dressed up very ornately and garishly, and I'm thinking, like, some costume designer, like, fucking broke their back to dress all of these people up like this. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm probably going to do this all episode. Fun fact number one. Fun fact number one. The costume designers from this movie were asked by Vogue to uh, create some costumes for a photo shoot for Vogue magazine, and they did. Oh, really? Really, yeah. That's after, cool. After seeing the movie, so. That's like Vogue tipping its hat for the fashion in this. Yeah. Also, they made a bunch of um, special couture outfits for a very high-end uh, shop in London to sell them. Damn. I know. Look at that. That's really cool. <laughs> so, yeah, just right off the bat, like, we're just getting, like, narration at this point. It's, you know, high fantasy stuff. But I'm looking around, just like the way that the crystal, like, it's just hanging there. It's just hanging there, and it looks so good. Yeah. Just. I was I wondering know. how they did that. They must have lit it from inside or something. I don't know. It's probably fishing wire. I don't know, but it looks great. <laughs> Today, once more, they will replenish themselves, cheat death again, through the power of their source, their treasure, their fate, the dark crystal. And then the way that the, the Skeksis, like, you can kind of, like, see them breathing and blinking. Yeah. You could see, one of them you could see his eye twitch yeah. a little bit. I was like, damn, that's really good. It just, all that stuff would just look so good. And I'm sitting there, and this movie's from 1982. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking how much I prefer this to any creature in the Lord of the Rings or Avatar or, like, any other CGI, high fantasy, whatever. Yeah. And I don't know, like, I do miss this. Like, this movie predates me. (laughs) Like, it's older than I am. 
And I'm sitting here just thinking how gorgeous it looks. Yeah, I was thinking about that watching it today because, you know, a lot of these puppets, there's somebody in there moving Mm -hmm. it around. But then they also have like little radio controlled parts that move like eyes and things like that. So the puppeteer doesn't have to worry about that junk. But that required a lot of cables to be run to the puppet. So those were always had to be out of shot. And I'm thinking like today, if you had that same technology, you could use like Bluetooth or something. Yeah. And it would make it so much smaller and you'd have so much more freedom with that kind of stuff. And I'm like, why don't they just do that? I mean, I understand why we don't because it's cheaper to use computers, but it's just like it would look so cool. I wonder, is it really cheaper to use computers? Like CGI isn't necessarily cheap. I think it's just that movie studios get rewarded for these big cgi messes but like honestly i feel like at this point bluetooth technology is probably overall cheaper than like big cgi spectacles because i mean you could make a movie like dark crystal you know all analog and probably do it fairly affordably yeah i mean it just seems like why did this technology stop once computers came around? Like, why didn't that continue as just like its own kind of genre? I mean, right off, like Ed Wood was a commercial failure for Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. And, like, it only cost like ten million to make, and he didn't recoup his money. Oh, ouch! But like the next thing, he didn't direct it, but he produced it, Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm-hmm. That was also like antiquated technology at that point. Like nobody was doing stop motion like that. Yeah, people don't do it a lot now, but Wes Anderson does it. That's true. Um. And I don't know. I kind of wish that there was a champion for this sort of puppetry the way that Tim Burton like championed stop motion. Yeah. And it just seems like the technology shouldn't have stopped here. You know, like mm-hmm. we should still be having complete worlds built like this, but with better technology. You know, I'm, like there's this is a singular movie, like a viewing oh, experience. Yeah. There's nothing else that I can think of that's like this, where it's used. They com- completely built the, all the worlds like and it's devoid of, like, humans. Completely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, You know, like, other high fantasy stuff. Like, the 80s kind of had, like, a fascination with fantasy like mm-hmm. this. I guess people, like, who read the original Lord of the Rings, like, the books, growing up must have been like, I want to do something like this, like, when I'm older. And, like, they all became, like, filmmakers because, you know, you got this, you got things like disney's black cauldron you got never ending story which i saw like a lot of similarities there yeah things like crawl or q and things like that uh the 80s yeah they love loved fantasy like original fantasy yeah and it's like there's just so much world building dune Mm. would be in there honestly watching this movie today made me appreciate the lord of the rings a little more just because as much as I do like this movie, I think it has kind of a lame plot. Like, I think if it suffers somewhere, that's probably the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's so hard to build this whole world and then also have it have some kind of good narrative, yeah. I think. Well, what if we just uh, imagine this as, like, the 90-minute pilot episode of Fraggle Rock? <laughs> Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that this is just step one into the Fraggle Rock worlds. I mean, fun fact number two. Fun fact number two. He was working on Fraggle Rock at the same time. Oh, so, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Fraggle Rock came out like 83, I think. Premiered in January 83, so like right after this came out. I mean, I haven't seen Fraggle Rock in many decades now, but that's all like... Uh, investigating the deaths of the Gelfins, right? <laughs> that's what the Doozers were up for, yeah. up to? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and also there, there's something that struck me this time that, like, this movie is basically, like, 
if you commit genocide and then the planets align, you get to go to heaven. <laughs> like, it kind of felt like, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> this doesn't sound great. <laughs> Is that what it was? Because, yeah, it's like, I thought... They kill all but two Gilflings. Yeah. But I thought they killed all but the two because, like, in the prophecy, they just show that, that a, a Gelfling will, like, destroy them. Mm-hmm. So I thought that like, that's why they were killing them. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, isn't the lesson then... Wait, where do they go to heaven? Like, where is that spelled out? At the out? end, they, like... They, when they become the, like, combined being, whatever it is, a, a, a skek stick or whatever you want to call... Are you equating their ascension up with the Judeo-Christian notions of heaven being above us? I guess. This isn't even Earth. Like... <laughs> Uh, oh, do you think you're, they're being punished for all, yeah. for their Gelfling crimes? How do you know that like uh, going up is not like going to like cold, dark space where they like are frozen alive for all eternity? Yeah, good, good point. So I think you're just projecting a little bit. <laughs> Sorry, I need to check my Terran privileges here. <laughs> but I, really, the. Uh, I can't remember their names now. It's the the Skrillexes <laughs> uh, were really my favorite part. Yeah, there was that one that went. Mm. <laughs> he makes that noise a lot. A lot, a lot. Yeah. But. I kind of liked everything about the way they looked, like the way they moved. Yeah, they're kind of vultury, kind of lizardy. Yeah, and uh, like they're humanoid enough, like they seem to like be person sized, like humanoid sized. Fun fact number three. Fun fact number three. Apparently, they uh, their bodies because the the person that was inside the suit couldn't see what they were doing. They made it so that they could have a monitor inside the belly of the Skeksy so that while one hand is up, you know, moving the head around and one arm, they had a second person behind moving the other arm and then they could look down and see on the monitor what it looked like they were doing. That's so much coordination. Isn't that crazy? And you think of all I the like... I can't even work with someone else in my office. Like, <laughs> let alone like coordinate with someone to move different parts of like one large puppet's body. Yeah. Like in not in unison like per se, but like in conjunction or complementary to one another. Like if you think of say like Ernie from Sesame Street, you got two hands. So the right hand, usually dominant hand, is doing like the mouth stuff and head stuff, mm-hmm. and so their left hand is doing the left hand of the puppet. Okay. And they've got a person that's like basically in their armpit with their arm out doing the right hand for them. So that's how they're able to make those Muppets look. So. Looks so real. That's crazy. Like he, I hear about like voice actors, like on Rick and Morty, the the same voice actor does Rick and Morty, right? Or like in The Simpsons, Dan Castellaneta like does like a thousand voices, and it's like not unusual for like there to be like two three pages of the script where it's like just him talking to himself in like three different voices. Yeah. And for me, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Like I can juggle that in my head Mm -hmm. but the idea of like having to coordinate with something that you can't even really see yeah that oh like uh, uh, i don't even know (laughs) how i would begin to do that i mean i think it's just a lot of practice in front of a mirror i guess or with our monitor that you suppose the puppeteers get like real close yeah they have to 
Yeah. Here, I'll show you a picture of Frank Oz and Jim Henson's oh, here, armpit. Here's some hot quality pot. <laughs> Well, I'll show you later, but um, yeah, they're all like they're all up in their biz. So wait, who who was in Jim Henson's armpit? Uh, there's a picture I think in here of Frank Oz all up in Jim Henson's armpit. Wow, and that's just like how you go to work. <laughs> like, yeah, that's your day that, at work. That, oh wow. <laughs> um, I mean, it must work though, because like if that's how Bert and Ernie were were puppeted, and then that's how the uh, Martin Screllies were were puppeted, then. Like, it must be something that, like, worked in terms of, like, making the Muppets more than just puppets. Yeah. This moment in history in Jim Henson's life was, like, he had successfully made a TV show. The Muppets TV show was huge. Five seasons. It had just wrapped up. The Muppet movie had come out. was a huge hit. And the Great Muppet Caper was, like, wrapping up and getting ready to be released. So he's going to have a successful sequel coming up. So, like, this was his moment to make, you know, his passion project he'd gotten the commercial stuff out of the way yeah yeah, so yeah, he, yeah. He, he was afforded some luxury to just make something weird go for it and he there's a whole story of somebody buying up shares of the of the person who had the rights to this and jim henson having to buy all that back to have a controlling interest in the movie um which is kind of interesting mm, nothing's I more interesting know. than uh <laughs> you know copyright power struggles (laughs) but uh i don't know i think that like because he cared so much about it he was too close to it a little bit like he wouldn't listen to everybody saying that there are flaws in this project like we mentioned this last episode but like he originally wanted to have the skexies and the the mystics or i guess have only the gelflings talk in english and everybody else would just talk in made-up languages Mm -hmm. and like he did a screening of it and people were just like what the fuck Oh, really? What's that about? Yeah, it was, like, really, really bad. So they had to go back and actually, like, make dialogue based on how they had moved the puppets originally. Uh... Yeah, so when you think of, like, that scene when they're at the old temple or whatever and they're reading the transcription and the Skeksy shows up, the Chamberlain shows up and he's like, Friend! Stay! Friend! Please! Yes! Please! Like, Mm -hmm. that's just because they were probably, like, Rock, beep, rock. Oh, okay. I had to come up with something for him to say in that time. Tangential note: When we're talking about like making up a language mm-hmm. for the 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 scarcies, um, <laughs> that to me was like, oh, like J.R.R. Tolkien made you know Elfin a language. But which came first, uh, Klingon or Elfin? Probably Elfin. Yeah. Because yeah, isn't the Lord of Rings from like the forties or something? Is it? Is it that old? Yeah, it's pretty old. Hold, please. <laughs> oh, no, you're right. 1937 was when The Hobbit came out. Okay. And, yeah, they were all written between 37 and 49. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, Lord of the Rings came first. Yeah, apparently they were based... Uh, a, a lot of these languages were based on um, real languages. So, fun fact number... I don't know where we're at now. Fun fact. I don't know where we are here. But the uh, the little um, podlings, the ones that have the, the kick-ass party, um, they were, first of all, their design was based off potatoes because they're connected to the earth, so that's why they look the way they did. But their language was based on, like, Serbo-Croatian stuff, and so they actually use, like, certain words from there, so people who knew, speak those languages could pick up certain words here and there. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I like, 
to me that that strikes like like I was saying in the beginning like 80s were all the kids who read Lord of the Rings during their formative years like had finally grown up to be storytellers of their own and they wanted to do stuff like Lord of the Rings but not directly just make elves and golems and things like that and I mean you uh, get this but you could also get just as easily like a rock and rule so it's a slippery slope (laughs) but you know making up your own language that like if someone other than tolkien did it first like let me know and we're not counting esperanto (laughs) so yeah probably better that they didn't although there was some stuff that i really didn't like because i was trying to watch it this time thinking like what would what would this be like as a silent completely silent movie or just like you couldn't understand what they were saying um and for some of it i'm kind of like okay i could see this working i could see it working only as like a visual did you pull a bow trevi and just get stoned and put it on mute and see if like it (laughs) still had the same impact on you no no um (laughs) but like i don't know there's all those like stuff where uh jen is doing the inner monologue kind of stuff and it's just Mm. like we don't need this just keep it lush and beautiful like it's so it's so visually stimulating we don't need him going what's with this shard why am i walking around yeah like that was so stupid i can see some producer being like well we don't really know jen enough as a character yeah and you know the viewer in me is like we don't really need to like (laughs) actually i realized this time too i don't really like jen very much he's kind of useless Except yeah. for when he reads the prophecy, that's like his only thing he does. I mean, he does like put, like he slides the shard in the hole with a lot of help from Kira. <laughs> I think probably my favorite line in the whole movie was like at the beginning of the third act when they jump off the cliff uh-huh. and Kira's wings come out. Oh yeah, and he's like, "I don't have wings." Of course not. You're a boy. It's such a, an out to like give her wings. Like, oh, they'll just jump off the cliff and she'll have wings. Mm-hmm. Like, it's such a way to just write out a problem. But the way that they deliver, well, of course not. You're a boy. I'm like, oh, that's good. Yeah. Like, that totally absolves my issue with <laughs> them, you know, finding a cheap out for this problem. I liked that too. I think my favorite line this time around was when he's walking around by himself at the beginning in this inner monologue and he just goes, this place is weird. And I'm like, it is pretty weird. I also liked when he got knocked in the mud. He's like, oh, right in the mud. <laughs> like when we're just talking about world building, I love all the small little creatures they add here and there and make like the living plants and stuff that show up for one shot. There's one like long tracking shot of just sort of when he's in the like marshy area and there's this one creature that looks like just roots basically like pulling out of the water mm-hmm, and you don't see mm-hmm. it ever again but it's just like well there's the sort of like uh uh we'll put it in little mermaid turn the land sea anemones uh-huh. that like grow <laughs> mm-hmm. and like we never see those again it's just like for that one shot they sprout or bloom or whatever you want to call it Yeah 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 and I love that. And like the land striders that they ride, which both die. Mm-hmm. Those, that made me very sad. But like, you know, they're just there for that one, that fun like shot. And then they get off and then they like, we don't hear from them again. They're just <laughs> gone <laughs> to land rider heaven. <laughs> they went down because uh, in this world, down is where heaven is. So. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Man, this movie's got layers. <laughs> what were the little crabby creatures called? Gel- they're not gelfins. They're like 
Gryffindors. I don't know. You got all these fun facts. You don't even know the names of like. I really want. I was main supporting. Who's supposed to make the cheat sheets over here, huh? (laughs) You brought a cheat sheet. It's called the Jim Henson biography. I'm not leafing through 700 pages to find that one word. (laughs) I liked them. Okay, is what I wanted to say. (laughs) The they're like black beetle lobster things they did remind me of whatever those shitty villainous creatures were in neverending story part two i don't remember what they were but they were like cockroachy crab creatures or something but they like if i remember correctly they like lumbered Mm. and these guys were actually pretty spry yeah and when you were looking for it was like oh i can see like the actor's legs and how there's just like little tentacles attached to to their legs but you kind of you have to look for it if you're not actively looking for it it just looks like they got like a thousand legs that are crazy. Yeah, I think the sound design helps with that too. The like, tick, 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 tick. yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, it looks it looks great. Yeah, and but like the design of like their I don't want to say faces. Do bugs have faces? Yes. Are they called faces? Like, hmm. In like a a, a entomological sense, because that's. Not even remotely the right word. Bug but. experts. <laughs> Do bugs have faces? Yeah, are they, are they call like the face on like a on like a cockroach. Does a cockroach have a face? What would they call it instead? It's not that they have a face and they call it something different, but like I feel like they just have like a mouth and eyes, but maybe not what we would distinguish as a face proper. Okay. I don't know because like the mouth might be fairly far removed. From the eyes, like, and, you know, you wouldn't call, like, that whole region the face, maybe? Hmm. How far down the uh, evolutionary chain are you going to go before you stop calling it a face? Like, can fish still have a face? Well, I don't know. Can tadpole have a face? I mean, this is the question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, with, with fish, it's always, like, the head, like... I would say that a fish has a face. Fish has okay. <laughs> Can but, I quote you on that? <laughs> but I wouldn't necessarily go as far to say that like a cockroach has a face. Hmm. But is that going further down the evolutionary line? Yes. Are fish above cockroaches? I'm going to say yes because okay. insects were around before fish. I think weren't they? Mm. Mm. <laughs> Boy, I do not know my evolutionary <laughs> science there. I'm, I'm willing to admit that. Uh, but whatever the Gryffindors were, that uh, the, the giant cockroach bug uh-huh, dealies, uh-huh, like uh-huh. whether or not they had faces or not, but their design just it looked great. According to the Wikipedia page, this is not from the uh, Jim Henson, the biography by Brian J. Jones. Those costumes were so heavy that between takes, they had to like, hang the actors up on a rack or like hang, hang the, con- the actors up well like connect the c- costume to a rack so it would take some of the uh weight out of there of the actors oh yeah, yeah yeah okay yeah apparently the mystics creatures were really hard to uh engineer because you had to like get down on your haunches and like extend out your arm to do their faces and they had like four arms yeah just to begin with so was that like three people to operate those things? I don't, I don't know how they did that. Maybe well, I mean, if they had four arms and another arm to like operate the mouth, 
I don't know. Immediately, if someone were to like show me the design of a mystic, I'd be like, wow, this is like obviously designed by someone who will never have to operate one of these. <laughs> but like Jim Henson's like out there, like in the trenches with all the other puppeteers. Oh, yeah. He does Jen in this movie. So like he must design this like, oh, this is going to be a pain, but this is what I'm going for. And I get the feeling with Jim Henson, like, he wouldn't ask other puppeteers to do anything that he wouldn't be willing to do. Oh, look at you. It's like you've read this book. <laughs> yeah, so there's, like, some no-name puppeteer who's like, yeah, yes, a lot of us, but he's he's our General Patton. <laughs> I'm sorry, there's a guy in a towel up behind you now, and it's just distracting me. <laughs> Which, hello. He's just silhouetted there. Is he looking at us? Are we Are we looking at each other? Oh. 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 <laughs> I was going to say, I got some binoculars over there. You, we're going to rear window him over here? Well. Uh, hey, it looks like he's taking off his <laughs> towel. <laughs> I didn't take it out for air. <laughs> Jimmy's going to hit you hard with the love baton. <laughs> You're ready for a pounding. <laughs> I was a little worried we were going to have trouble talking about this movie because we're not it's a, talking about this movie. <laughs> that's what I mean. It's like it's so visually interesting, but like there's just not much there other than the visuals, I think. No, and while I was watching it uh, cuz like I was saying that like at the beginning like if you're in to this type of production design like it's so sumptuous yeah it looks so good so i watched neither this nor labyrinth growing up okay i didn't see either till i was an adult labyrinth does not hold up Mm. like if you didn't watch it as a kid i don't think like you can really appreciate it as an adult Mm -hmm. this one i i feel like you can appreciate it on certain levels but it's a little slow. Like it, it is it, pacing is way off. Yeah, in this movie. It, it really takes its time. But like the big draw with Labyrinth is that David Bowie's in it, mm-hmm. and like if you're a David Bowie fan, like it's sort of like you just got to see it. Like yeah. there's no way around it. Whereas this, like if you're just a fan of like this type of like nerdery, mm-hmm. then you have to see it, and that that's a bigger thing. Like with Labyrinth, like you have to be a David Bowie fan to really appreciate it, unless you saw it as a kid. This one, if you like this type of set design, this type of costuming, this type of like puppetry or animatronics, like it's a wider net in like the movie oeuvre mm-hmm. to draw you to this. I mean, even AFI didn't make the list, but it was nominated for like best fantasy film, like top oh. 10 best fantasy film. Okay. I almost want him to be more arty. Like, I wish it had gone further into the art realm like what if it was a completely silent film like what what if like he had kept the like slow sort of pastoral pace and like just really focus on like we know we talked about um alfred hitchcock and rope a couple episodes ago and how he's such a strong visual storyteller like you could watch rope with the sound off and still kind of get the gist of what's going on sure like i almost feel like if he had pushed this movie a little more and like really stuck to his guns it could have been this like fantastic art piece i mean it is but it's just it's like it it falls there's something about short yeah it doesn't just doesn't quite reach the point that you want it to yeah and i feel like you know 
even though, like we were talking earlier, this was his time to make an art movie, like, it's still not his money. Like, someone else is going to be like, I don't know if the, you know, Skrillexes should be talking in their own language. You know, maybe they should talk in English. And is that a reasonable request? Like, kind of. It's got the name Jim Henson attached to it, so people do have the expectations of Muppets or Sesame Street or, you know, something. And to go too far the other direction, like, just expectations from fans of Jim Henson might be disappointed yeah and but, he battled that when when this came out because people were like where are the muppets and like they also you know they were expecting a little more family friendly fare and this is i'd say i don't think this is a kids movie necessarily i think it's like a tweener kind of thing like like yeah. can you imagine being like 13 and seeing this movie like I, that's like the sweet spot i think i feel like just preteen, like 11 12 okay like eh, like 10 11 yeah Right in Somewhere there. Somewhere in there. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't necessarily, like, show this to, like, young kids. No. It's but, a little too scary for kids. The younger kids. Yeah. But if you're, like, right on that edge of, like, yeah, sixth grade, maybe. I want to say, like, when you're too old for Muppets. But the Muppets have, I don't want to say adult humor, but they put in stuff for the grown-ups in yeah, there. Yeah, there's adult appeal in there. And, yeah, like, you know, when we watched Muppets Take Manhattan, like, there were definitely jokes in there that only grown-ups would get not because it's like adult humor but because it's just you know outside a child's frame yeah, of no reference. kid is laughing because ed Koch is in that movie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i mean i guess we should mention this is i think this is frank oz's first directorial credit he shared oh. it with jim henson yeah uh you know frank oz directed uh muppets take manhattan mm-hmm. and jim henson insisted that frank oz direct like co-direct with him which i think caused a lot of conflict apparently like it wasn't probably wasn't the smartest idea because it was all jim's vision and he really should have just done it himself Mm. you think frank oz hindered it in some way or yeah frank oz thinks so too oh really yeah apparently like there were times when he was supposed to be directing things that he didn't understand because he didn't like get the full vision of the movie he didn't speak Skeksis yeah. or whatever. And he was like, I don't know what they're saying. What is this? And then, then like, you know, the performers too were like, Frank Oz would tell them to do something. And then they'd like all look at Jim and be like, is that, is that what you want us to do? Mm. So it's like, they all still kind of felt like he was the one they should be paying attention to. I guess I, it, it doesn't seem totally necessary for Jim Henson to like play Jen. Yeah, and that's something I read about, too, where uh, the person who puppeteered Kira would, like, go back to the puppet technicians and be like, can we tweak this, can we tweak this, because it's hard to work, blah, blah, blah. But Jim was so busy directing and messing around with everything else, he just, like, worked with the puppet he had. And, like, you can see the difference. Like, the Kira feels way more lifelike than Jen does, to Mm. me, when I'm watching. Like, Mm -hmm. Jen feels very stiff. Kira seems just, like, much more real. She's a much better character, too, I think. Don't you? Like, I like her a lot more than Jen. Yeah, Jen's definitely flat. It kind of reminded me of, like, when you play, like, Legend of Zelda. It's like Link. Like, Link's sort of... You just project into Link. Yeah. Link's not a character. Whereas, like, Zelda actually is a character. Like, you know a little bit about Zelda. Yeah. Kind of the same thing here. I think that's why, like, yeah, Jim Henson would have been better, like, to just take a single role Mm -hmm. in this movie instead of all the roles. Yeah. So much technical stuff to think about, like, 
with all the cables and like people have to be out of frame and like it's just too much for one person to also have to be in it like yeah and then just to do like normal movie director stuff like how do we frame this dynamically or how do we shoot this dialogue scene to like portray the power dynamic of what's going on. Yeah. Like, I mean, forget about and it. And then to have these like technical complications that also, you know, hinder your instincts for directing. So yeah, I can see that. And also you're just so close to it. Like, but they must've remained friends. Like it didn't like ruin the oh, friendship. No, not at all. Yeah. 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 They remained friends till the end. So, okay. Question for you. What was your favorite creature from this movie? Um, hmm. Well, I mean, the uh, Skirxies were definitely my favorite of, like, the main creatures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just the way they moved, the way they looked, the way they blinked, and the way they breathed. Like, it was all good. All real good. But if we're talking, like, maybe one of, like, the... uh, minor creatures like maybe one of the one-off creatures those like salmon things that rolled away like that genuinely kind of like startled me oh yeah like i don't know it just they look so appropriate in the scene and then to have them like move yeah i was like oh this is all very strange this place is weird what about you i love those land strider things like oh really i want one of my own to ride (laughs) They're kind of creepy looking with like their weird like whiskery and their long faces. tongues. Yeah. They put up a good fight though. Yeah. And they're fast. I don't know. They just seem they just seem cool. Like I thought they'd just get pummeled by the the uh, Gryffindors. Uh, but actually they like knocked out a few yeah. before before you know meeting their untimely demise. Before uh, descending into heaven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Uh Probably a close second is, and I can't believe we haven't talked about it yet, is Ogre. You look like Gelfling. Smell like Gelfling. Maybe you are Gelfling. I always forget about this, I guess, but like when you finally get into her house mm-hmm. and there's that crazy like planetary thing she's got with all there that's like spinning around and everything. It's like they had to build that. That's a real thing that yeah. existed. Yeah. <laughs> it just, it, it boggles my mind that, that that they took the time to make that and money to put together this huge planetary spinny sphere thing. You yeah, know, it's the eighties. You know, people just had money to burn or singe at the very least. <sighs> it's wild. It's beautiful. It, it it looks really good. Can you imagine on a big screen? I mean, I've seen this movie twice. One time was in high school. The first time was in high school, so it wasn't a child's movie for me. Wait, you've only seen this movie twice? Well, twice before t- today. Really? Yeah. Um, oh, I figured, I just kind of naturally assumed this was like a childhood favorite of yours. No, no. I, oh. I never saw it as a kid. I saw it for the first time in high school. And I liked it, I think. But I, I was I watched it with a lot of people whose it was their childhood favorite. Yeah. So um, it was kind of fun to just sort of feed off their excitement mm-hmm. for me seeing it for the first time. And then I watched it a few years later at a midnight showing at the Egyptian and little stoned. And that was the way to see it. Yeah. It was I can just see like that. this is amazing <laughs> yeah no i can see that no yeah highly recommended if you can ever see it on a big screen a little baked yeah i can like. see because watching it home i mean there's a like a 4k ultra version of this oh available too so it's like 
And there's with good reason. Like the movie looks great. It looks great. It really is. It was hard to take notes because I was like, I just don't want to look away. Yeah. You know. No, just sumptuous visuals. And even like Jen, like you know, stiff, flat, one-dimensional character. There's just a scene where he's like running and like the wind hits him and like the way that like the wind hits his hair. I'm like, kind of looks like a person. Like, yeah. Kind of looks like a person running in the wind. Yeah. I still feel like everyone needs to see this movie because it really is sort of like a singular movie watching experience even though it has its faults you're just never going to see anything else like this and i wish that they would i wish people would you know go back into this realm of like making it for real doing puppetry i feel like there's a market for a movie like this like if someone were to make i don't want to say a sequel or a prequel or even a spin-off but if someone were to make like the next of kin for Dark Crystal, mm-hmm. like I feel like that has like a built-in fan base. Netflix is doing a series with it mm. um, that's uh, apparently not necessarily completely related to the movie, but like takes place in the universe. Okay, which was I'm almost more for than like continuing the story. Like, yeah. why don't you just give me like ten short episodes about something that happens in this world? Mm-hmm. Because there's been so much work put in. And just the world building. Like, we don't need to focus on the plot, which is the weak point. The strong point of this movie is the world that they built. Like, yeah, let's explore that. That sounds like a lot of fun. Do we cover it all? I don't have, I mean, I don't have a lot to say just because this is definitely one of those movies that's like in the watching. Like, yeah, I feel. Yeah. You just got to sit down and soak up all those colors and textures. Yeah. It's better to be seen than heard about. Uh, do we know what we're doing next week? Yeah. Great, then what are we doing next week, Matt? Ryan, I don't know if you know this or if our listeners know this. Uh huh. We're gay. <laughs> what will my mother think? <laughs> like, you know, we're gay, but both of us, we. It's not like the, the, the thing that people need to know about us the most mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we don't like hand them a card this is like hello i'm gay when we meet someone new yeah the, i haven't printed those in at least 15 years <laughs> so it's like even though we're gay we don't actually do that many gay movies like we do more than say average movie watchers mm-hmm. but we don't do them overwhelmingly or exclusively right but things change starting with next week's double feature we're hitting hard on some gay stuff. Closing us out for this season, <laughs> we're doing a double feature. <laughs> of a director. And keeping true to form, all of our uh, director double features are of gay directors. Uh-huh. Uh, we're doing John Waters. The one and only. I might even go so far as to call him an American treasure. I would, and we'll we'll get into it next week. I okay, guess. Okay, 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 okay. We're doing two of his movies: Hairspray and Desperate Living. I knew that's the ones that we were doing. 
John Waters, he's not the easiest director to love, but I think he's got some real talent. Yeah, and I mean, I think if the last three movies at least have been any indication of what this season is about, I think the words would be production design. Like, we've watched three movies in a row now that have had very... I'll say four even. Let's throw Sweeney Todd in there that have, like, very distinct, specific production design. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, if you want to talk production design, let's talk about John Waters because, like, even his first films have a very distinct style to them. And we'll we'll talk about, especially with Hairspray, we'll talk about it, but John Waters is very American. And I don't think you can slap that on every American director. Uh, so yeah, next week we're doing Hairspray and Desperate Living. Yeah. Well, would you care to plug our junk and then get the fuck out of here? Well, we have finished the chicken picnic. Hey, give us a follow over on the old Twitter sphere. We are at X-Rated Movies. We post fun stuff, only fun and funny things, and you won't regret it. Follow us on Facebook at Rated X Movies. A lot of the same. Yeah. Those are both great places to contact us. But you know another great way to contact us, Matt? I do. Yeah, it's our it's our email. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, x.rated.movies at gmail.com. Exactly. <laughs> and those are great places to tell us what we should say in our opening segments. Ask us questions. Give us topics to talk about. You know, We're much better <laughs> when someone else suggests. Jessica Baxter did a great job. Emily Duncan with uh, what's coming and going off Netflix. Even if it's just... Uh, I watched a whole movie based on that segment. <laughs> you know, where did I leave the scissors? We'll speculate on that. I'm happy to. Check the toilet. <laughs> if you're enjoying content like this, uh, please go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and some stars because... Recently, I've had a lot of people IRL telling me they've listened to the podcast, and it's so gratifying <laughs> like to know that yeah. we're not just screaming out into the void. It really is. <laughs> like, like People of note have said that they like the podcast. I'm like, where have you been? Yeah. <laughs> Please, leave a review, just even if it says, you know, Jimmy... Not Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy <laughs> Stewart. Five stars. Can we, can we please try and get at least like five reviews that just say jimmy stewart blumpkin <laughs> with five stars <laughs> all right but i'm gonna have to come up with five different itunes accounts <laughs> no i'm asking our listeners to do that yeah please jimmy stewart blumpkin five stars <laughs> uh there we wrote the review for you you just have to go in and do it next week we're gonna be doing a double feature of john waters flicks desperate living hairspray until then thank you for listening and Keep Keep reaching reaching for for that that rainbow. rainbow.